0: Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I have to tell you something, people. It's, it's the Super Bowl on Sunday. And uh, I'm a big football fan, as you know. And this is the first time that I don't even care. I, I, it's all my life. I've loved the Super Bowl. I've been a football fan. And I don't know if it's because I don't like the Patriots I don't know if it's just because of political climate, but I don't care. So it's it's going to be interesting to watch it. We're not having a party. I don't know where I'm going to watch it. I know me and Joanne may get junk food, you know, maybe some pizza and some hot dogs, which she never eats, but she'll make this allowance on the Super Bowl. And we'll go from there. So anyway, we have a great show. People just, you know, I, I had reverb so i had to restart so it's just funny my guest is probably gone what's going on steve anyway my guest is a a, a a comic a writer an emmy winner my guest is mike royce how you doing mike
1: I'm um, great thank you and no i agree with you 100 percent about the super bowl because i i i normally you know care i'm a sports fan and for some reason, this year it's just slipped. I don't know if it's the political things that are holding my attention, but somehow it's like, oh, right, there's a game on Sunday.
0: Now, you're from Syracuse, so who was your team growing up? Are you a Bills fan?
1: Well, weird. I should have been, and actually most of my relatives have a very large family that's all from upstate New York. Most of my family's Bills fans. I was more of a, like, I, you know, when I was seven or eight, I gravitated to whoever was good. Right. So I became a Vikings fan. So I was a big Vikings fan in my childhood, even though they were also the uh, they were sort of the Bills of their day because um, they just kept losing the Super Bowl, even though they were really good.
0: It's funny you say that because I also, as a kid, I grew up as an Eagles fan, but the Eagles stunk, so I gravitated towards the Viking. And I still remember having you would go through the Sears magazine and you'd see their jackets, and I had that beanie because it was when Tarkington played, and I had that ye- the beanie, the Vikings green purple beanie with the yellow ringer on the front and the beanie on top. So that's funny. We were yep. both Vikings fans as kids.
1: I remember very, uh, still makes me cry a little bit, Drew, Drew Pearson catching uh, cowboys, <laughs> like always catching the ball and pushing off. He pushed off.
0: <laughs> so, so, okay, so now you're, you're a sports fan, but now as a kid, were, were you a funny kid? I mean, how did you start this whole life in comedy and then writing? Were you, did you, as a kid, what did you want to do? Like in, through high school, did you know you wanted to follow these roles? Or what happened?
1: Uh, I mean, I would, I always say I'm not, I was never a class clown by in any sense. I was much, much too shy and much too nerdy. So there were always like funny, funnier kids around who were more attention seeking. And I wasn't that kind of person. I was more the guy who would sit, I had a couple of really close friends and we were the kind of kids who would sit in the back of the classroom and make little jokes, whisper jokes to ourselves, but never share it with anybody else because we're too, uh, you know, uh, uh, uh introverted you know so um i then i did develop a interest in theater i saw like a high school play when i was a freshman and i was like oh i gotta just suddenly it awoke something in me so once i got into theater it became i later put those two things together i guess of being funny and also performing i sort of got used to the fact that when you're on stage it's a different thing than when you're just hanging out with people being funny one is you're putting you know i was much more brave on stage let's put it that way
0: now you did theater in high school. When it was time for go to, to go to college, you went to Ithaca, I believe. And what was your what was your major? And then did you sit there? And did it help you having that major in your to further your career along the road?
1: Uh, it did. I, I I think everything sort of all came together a piece at a time because I was did a lot of plays in high school. But then I didn't want to major in acting, so I majored in film because I also with my my two my two close friends uh Bill and Stu, I, we would make films, and this was back super 8 films. you know, there's no sound, you're in the backyard, half the time it's coming out underexposed. The tools that you can use now are so much better. but we would do that all the time, and I really loved doing that. so I wanted to go for that. So I became a film major at I think a college, and you know it's it, it, that that was a piece of the puzzle to me eventually becoming a writer.
0: So you go to college, it's a you know you graduate. And now, where do you decide to go? Do you decide to go straight to New York City? Because you're from Syracuse, so it's not like someone from you know, an Ithaca. Ithaca located where?
1: Ithaca is about an hour ish south uh, east. Is it east of Syracuse? It's it's um, near Syracuse, but a drive. You know.
0: Okay. So so you're 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 in the vicinity. I mean, New York is not that far, which I always think. You know, when people are from the Midwest and they have to decide, you know, you decide either California. You know, LA or New York, and you're sort of in the middle, so you're not sure. You know, a lot of times I think they gravitate because to LA because it's warmer. But for you, I mean, it would probably be you're used to yeah. the East Coast, so it's probably a, a closer step, and you probably knew people from who went to New York.
1: No, that's all exactly right. Uh, my roommate from college was a year ahead of me, uh, and he had moved to New York, so I had a, he had a place open up, so that was part of it. Um, I had no interest in moving to los angeles because i had no knowledge of it but most of all i really had fallen in love with new york city as a teenager even taking high school trips there and my girlfriend at the time was she was a year ahead of me so she went to college she went to barnard in new york and i got to you know i'd visit her a couple of times and i have these very vivid memories of uh I went to see a movie in the middle. You know, they double features in the middle of the day, which was like holy. You know, like I don't. You know, get that serious. I took the subway from Columbia, which was pretty sketchy at that at that time, all the way down to Times Square, which was also very sketchy. <laughs> I went to some movie house in the middle of the day. I watched Midnight Cowboy and Marathon Man, two really scuzzball New York movies in the middle of a the Most typical feet sticking on the, you know, soda spilled all over the place, feet sticking on the ground theater, and it was raining out, and the subway was awful, and I loved every minute of it. It was just so great, and I really, I don't know what it was, just the energy of the city. I just loved it. So different than where I was from, and I always wanted to go there, so that was kind of always the destination.
0: So you get there. Now, when do you decide to start doing stand-up? Because right then, you know, I mean, because I did stand-up, I started like in 89. I did it from 89 to 95. I know you did it from like I think from '88. So we we were like on the tail end of the comedy boom. It was still jumping, I think, but it wasn't what it was in like '85 and '86. What made you decide to do stand up? And I mean, and where did you do your first time? To- where your first open mic or gig at?
1: Well, growing up, you know, with with these friends of mine, we you know Carson and then Letterman and then Saturday Night Live and Fernwood Tonight and Second City TV. These were the things that consumed my childhood. So. And then stand-up, even just seeing stand-ups on the Carson show and then later on the Letterman show, um, I always wanted to do that, but I always never never thought I would have the courage to do it. And some of my friends, a couple a couple people I knew did it in college, but that to me was like a nightmare, because then you bomb and you're trapped with your audience for four years, you know, every just walking around, hey there's the guy who sucked. Remember when you sucked well, you know, forever? So I just it, it just seemed like a nightmare. But then once I moved to New York I really, it was just the fact that it was totally anonymous, you know, like I could just go and I went to Pips in Brooklyn was the first place I went.
0: I know um, Sheep's Head Bay.
1: <laughs> yeah. Sheepshead Bay all the way out. I lived on Staten Island at the time. So it was like a whole trek. Um, although in some ways closer, but, uh, uh, yeah, I went and like, I was like, I'm never going to see any of these people ever again. So let's just try it, you know? And, um, and you know i I took it from there and uh the the first time actually went pretty well. I'm ashamed to say that the first laugh I got was at the expense of another comic, which is not really you know it's it's not really um it's against protocol <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh he had had a particularly weird set, so I just kind of i, I wasn't really making a joke about him, but it was uh a, a, a reference to something that he did um Anyway, yeah, that was my first time, and um, it was mostly because I was in New York.
0: Was was the comic? Did he have uh, babies on stage with him?
1: <laughs> Why do you remember a guy like that?
0: No, well, you remember Lenny Schultz?
1: Yes, I. He would, had those, was...
0: those weird babies. He was they would pee stuff. <laughs> okay, right. never mind. I, I thought that might be who you're talking about. So.
1: Yeah, no, I worked with him later in the mid '90s. At, at uh, that was insane. Okay. Insane. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so so you're starting to do comedy now. Now you, you have a good set. So then do you start going up more? Do you start sitting there and saying, I'm going to hit other clubs?
1: Yeah, I had, you know, what I later learned was a, a little false confidence. Because then the first time, I, just the fact that I got a few laughs was kind of a, you know, oh, okay, maybe I do. like Maybe I'm going to be good at this. The second time, I was working a day job at MetLife at that point. And I had a few, you know, a bunch of people at work that I got to know. So I invited them to the second show, at, which was at Comedy U Grand, which isn't with us anymore. Neither is Pips, I guess. That was in Soho on Grand Street. And uh, so, you know, it was one of those things where, like, half the crowd was people I knew. And in, that, in this instance, they were eating it up. So I did, like, a lot of time, and it was great. And, what I, and so after the show, I'm, you know, go up to the club owner, kind of expecting him to be like, all right, well, you can work here now. And, of course, he said nothing of the sort. And I didn't realize, you know, what was happening, which was he was just happy I brought paying customers. He wasn't (laughs) wasn't about to give me, nor was I ready for actual comedy. Um, But in my head, I was thinking, man, I'm pretty good. So the third time was at the improv, the famous, famous improv, still the hot, you know, hottest club in the city at that point. And there used to be a lottery, which you may or may not uh, have been a part of, remember, and it was lying around the block that you would wait to get a number and they only gave out like 10 or 15 numbers. And, you know, if you, even of those numbers, if you didn't get one that was like one through five, you were going to be on late and it was probably going to suck. And I happened to get, I don't know exactly the number, but something like number two. So out of like maybe 100 or 200 people waiting in line, I got not only a number, which was an amazing thing, but a good number. Right. So I was set up here's the the setup for me taking the world by storm, you know and I went on and I remember Bill Scheft was on the show who longtime head writer for Letterman, super funny stand up Uh, he went on and destroyed and Mike Rowe now a writer but also a super funny stand up hot uh, act in the city at the time he destroyed and then I went on And I did not destroy Steve. (laughs) I did not do well at all. Uh, It was five minutes of, you know, there's no booing or heckling, but it was just people kind of uncomfortable. There's no laughs. You know, I had no confidence watching these real comics that I hadn't been exposed to at these two open mics that I did previously. Watching them operate gave me an idea of, oh, I'm in a different pool now. And um, I took the long long subway ride home and then ferry ride home to Staten Island feeling about as bad as I've ever felt in my entire life <laughs> and thinking there's no way I can ever ever be a comic ever um, and I didn't do it for probably six months eight months something like that and I, I don't know what it was that made me go up on stage again I really don't know but something was like yeah let me try it again um, and then once I tried it again, I kind of kept going and I, I didn't dare I learned my lesson about auditioning at the big club Right, but I just started to dig in on the open mics and stay where I was. Uh, you know Where my talent was
0: so so you're developing your act now. I know you also started doing a crowd warm-up
1: That's yeah that came later after I was do knew, knew a little bit what I was doing, but yeah in 90 uh, you know, I did open mics 89, 90, 91. I started getting work by around 91. And uh, by 92 or 93, uh, um, uh, John Stewart hired me to do the warm-up for his uh, MTV show. This for the first John Stewart show. And uh, then later, Mike Sweeney, who was uh, now the head writer for Conan for a long time, also stand-up at that time, he was doing the warm-up for the Maury Povich show. And he had to leave to do a writing job. And he recommended me and I took over that show, which now, was a whole odyssey.
0: You know, I'm trying to think, um, what is that show like? Because, okay, you, got, you have to think, you have to break it down like this. You know, people who, like when people come visit out here, like a friend of mine from high school, they want to go to a show. You know, I know some people who work for Conan. So you get you get them, Conan, you know, tickets to Conan. But you think that people who get tickets to Maury Povich, they must be just like walking down the street. It must not be the most conducive crowd Stand up. I mean, how is it as that job? I mean, that must have been a rocky road. You must have gone through hell sometimes.
1: Sometimes, yes, but it was interesting because, in some ways, you were such a relief for them to see because the subject matter could be so depressing sometimes. They they kind of, there were a million different topics. Back in those days, Maury was not doing Are You the Father and, and Teenage Boot Camp back to back. Uh, it was much more, every topic was different and there were serious ones and there were funny ones. And, um, he, um, so, so me going on in the beginning and then coming on in the middle, like at the commercial during commercial, you would kind of come on and, you know, walk around and kind of, you know, do some jokes and stuff and whatever, just, just work the crowd to keep them active. Usually ask them about, you know, make sure they're active and asking questions and stuff like that. And, uh, So, so being, I don't know, being like a funny presence, actually, they, they appreciated it, uh, especially if the subject matter, subject matter was, was depressing. Um, it was hard because it was in the morning and because yes, it wasn't like a structured, you know, it was a lot of shit going on. Excuse me. A lot of stuff going on. And, uh, you could, uh, you know, the focus wasn't necessarily laser focused on you. So you had to like spin some place to keep everybody's attention. So I just remember it was mostly that I had usually been up till three or four in the morning at the comedy cellar the night before. And then I'd wake up at nine and run across 26th Street and down some coffee and, you know, be up on doing the warm up at like 945, I think. Um, if I remember right. So it was a little crazy uh, schedule wise.
0: So you're doing that. You're doing stand up. You're doing the warm up. Now, when do you start writing? I know I believe your first job was uh, on an apartment 2F.
1: That's right. No,
0: that so. How did that come about? I mean, and that, did Scrovan write for that?
1: No, he no. There's a, you know what? There's another show that has a similar title. I think that he wrote for, but no. Okay. That was, he was already out in L.A. writing on Raymond. Actually, at that point. Um, uh, yeah, Apartment Two F is was an interesting because it, it was star the Scar brothers, uh, Jason and Randy Scar, who um, are uh, really really funny guys, and um, uh, they. They were big in the alternative comedy scene, Luna Lounge and all that kind of stuff that was happening in New York at that time. And I had really wanted to gravitate. I had wanted to do, go to those rooms, and I, I hadn't. And I was feeling a little stale as a stand-up. My act felt stale. And those guys, they liked me. They liked what I was doing. They kind of encouraged me to get involved and to go to you know, Luna Lounge and a couple other surf reality, these places that were around them. And it was so fun, and I got to do stuff that was so different than my regular act. It really expanded me as a as a comic and made me a much funnier. I just you know gave me a voice, I think, a little bit. So they were fans, I guess you could say. And then when they got this show, they were like, "You should submit for writing." And they actually kind of uh, you know, they, I, I'm not sure MTV was like. I think MTV was like, "Who's who's this guy? He's got no experience, or whatever." And uh, they kind of pushed for me to get on the show. So that was that was great and you know the show itself was a sort of sitcom slash alternative comedy it was a mishmash of a bunch of stuff but it was uh it was fun to write but that's you know that's sort of how your stand-up comedian uh, interactions translate into a writing thing
0: so you you get that writing job and then you're still doing stand-up now do you at that time sit there are you enjoying the writing or are you enjoying stand-up or are you thinking that you know i'm writing is going to be my career and creating shows I and mean, what was your mind frame at that point in your life were you just like you know a lot of times you know like uh you know a lot of comics they don't they don't want to be in a writing room they they, they can't do it they can't sit down yeah. you know they can't do it what was your you were younger then what was your mind frame did you think okay i can go down the road of writing i can go down the stand up i can do both where were you at mentally
1: yeah that's a very interesting question because you're absolutely right that is what you're Brain does, and I was still in New York, so, I mean, this was a show that was in New York City, so, technically speaking, I could still do Um, stand-up, it wasn't like I had moved to L.A. and had no, uh, you know, clubs that I was in, and I did continue to do stand-up, but I definitely pulled back a bunch, because the writing job, once we got into production, it became, like, a lot of writing jobs, you're there late, and this kind of, so I, I, it was weird for me to, for the first time in what, what was about 10 years... For me to not perform that much, like maybe a couple times a week, a few times a week, as opposed to for every every day for ten years I was on stage, every night, you know, with the except my my honeymoon I went away for two and a half weeks. I thought my whole career was over. Because I can't like, Whoa, what am I doing? I don't even you know, I got so used to being on stage, not only once, but two, three, four, five times a night, depending on the night in New York. That's the great thing about New York City. So so the writing job it was kind of a battle, like, well, is this good? Do I I did love the creative process of the writing job it was a little wonky uh, from a from a show perspective we were trying to figure out what kind of show it was it wasn't the smoothest process but what i discovered was i like this i'm gonna like i, I this is not if i became a writer this would not be settling i, I this is something i actually like to do and right after the show ended i wrote my first spec because i was just kind of charged up and i felt like i knew what i was doing and um it was a lot of fun and it, it it definitely changed my mind, and you're right. There's a lot of those comics who just can't deal with being in a room, and I had the opposite experience. I really I really liked it.
0: So you wrote your what was your spec? What did you write a spec for?
1: I wrote a Frasier.
0: Okay, now what did you do with that? Did you try to get an agent? Did you think you know I'm gonna get this to write to get hired to do a show? Did you have thoughts that you may have to move to to LA? I mean, what was uh, it?
1: Yeah, I I mean, I was, at the same time, so the Department 2F ended, and I was, you know, back to basically doing stand-up again, and my, my the whole experience of that, plus the alternative comedy scene, I was actually, for the first time, really the last year or two of my stand-up career was when I felt like, oh, I'm actually maybe becoming a good comic now. It took me a long time, but, you know, I'm not just getting laughs now, I'm actually writing stuff I want to write, and I felt like I had a voice, so so as a stand-up, I felt like I was really developing. So I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to give up stand-up and go become a writer. I was actually blossoming, you could say, as a stand-up. Uh, but at the same time, I now had connections. I was doing warm-up at the time for Spin City, which was in New York City. I gave my Fraser respect to Bill Lawrence, who was the showrunner. He then hired me to do a, a script for Spin City. So that translated to that. Uh, I got a manager. Carrie Hoffman read the, you know, because I gave it to uh, Tom Hertz, worked on Spin City, and he uh, passed it on. If I remember right. And um, uh, so, yeah, it was all kind of happening all at the same time, you know. Um, and when I later got, a, a you know, a job offer from Raymond and, and I, I also got one from Spin City, which was a little bit later, I, I did have a crisis of do I want to. Now I'm going to probably have to give up stand up. So I, do I want to do that or not?
0: So you you uh, you get you get your Spin City. This You write the script for it. The show the show gets made. Right. OK. So now when does Raymond come along and also when did, how did, was it with Spence city off you your job? I mean, did you know Raymond from New York and do you know, you know, was, was, you know, capital and Schneider, were they all working for Raymond at the time? Uh,
1: uh, yes, they started at the beginning, which was 96. So when I got the job at Raymond was, was three, I came out in the fourth season. So I came on 99, the 99, 2000 season. Um, so I knew all those guys. We were not close. I knew Tom a little better. You know, I, I just knew them all from the clubs, you know, basically. Uh, I knew Ray uh, a little better because we had hung out some, and Ray was actually responsible for He recommended me at the Comedy Cell when I first got in there. Um, he, I think he recommended me at Catch in Princeton, too, or something. You know, he helped me in my career earlier. And uh, the Raymond job came about because Ray was writing a book, and, um, he was writing a book um of his stand up and he um meanwhile sorry he was touring and he had hired me to open for him so he was showing me pages of this book and I kinda started helping him. Um he liked he just needed people to help him expand his material, you know, to, to into a book and he kinda liked what I was giving him. And um it, it became this thing where I was giving a little stuff and then it kinda snowballed into basically he and I being locked in a room together uh, you know putting the whole book together for the last couple months up through deadline. Uh, And that then later, I always think, you know, there still wasn't a job open on the show, but I think that had a big impact. Uh, And then later Ray did Saturday night live in like January of 99. And I wrote a sketch, Phil Rosenthal and Tom came to New York. I was still in New York. The three of us wrote sketches for Ray. I think that allowed Phil to see, that I'm not just like a Ray, what some some dude that he knows that I, you know, the sketch uh, ended up doing pretty well. And, you know, so he can see that I have uh, at least some chops. Uh, so that all led to when a job opened up, they offered it to me.
0: So you get the job offer, of course you take it. Now, you have to move to LA then. I mean, is, was that, well, that was
1: the, Yeah, that was, the, the conflict was, I also, you know, Bill Lawrence and those guys were nice enough to offer me a job on Spin City as well. And so I had a really hard choice because I love New York. As I mentioned, my wife was there, my uh, newborn baby (laughs) uh, was there and we had just moved to Brooklyn into this. So we had just bought our first apartment and here was this, you know, unicorn, which is a job, a sitcom job in New York city offering me a job Um, that like So it was, I had a rare fortunate experience in spin city. And then on the other hand, there's this show, you know, Raymond, which is, you know, a great show. I've been a fan. And I mean, Spin City was a great show, too. But, you know, writing for Ray, a guy I know, I probably related more to the subject matter of Raymond. Uh, but it meant moving to Los Angeles and, um, you know, uprooting my, my wife had a job, and, you know, and she had to, all that stuff. So it was a huge decision to make. And um, I finally just aired on the side of I think I can write, you know, creatively speaking and career-wise, it seems like the Raymond job is probably the one to take. Uh, you know, they were both. I mean, Raymond was kind of a little bigger hit than Spin City at that point. It became a bigger hit as it went along. But at that point, they were two great shows to choose from. And um, it was tough, tough to make the decision.
0: <laughs> yeah, now, when, uh, you, when you made yeah. the decision and then you decided to move, to, move it to L.A., did you – I mean, it was Ray it was – and Spence, you're right, they're both great shows and uh, they're both well-written and um, both likable leading people, leading men. Did you ever think when you joined Ray's show, and it was a hit, but it wasn't a huge hit then, did you ever think it would end up being an Emmy award-winning show? Did you think that the accolades would follow you? I mean, you know, what did you think when you came aboard on the show? Because at the time, you know, sitcoms were popular, but, you know, in this, you know, how sitcoms come and they go, so, what right. was your thinking? I mean, when you moved to LA, because you're you're moving, you know, as you said, you turned down this unicorn in the city. You you have to think, okay, this this needs to go for at least a few years.
1: Well, uh, honestly, I did think acclaim was going to come to that show. The critics did love Raymond, and like it, Raymond credits Ray himself credits the critics for keeping the show on the air in the first place because the ratings in the first year were not great at all, but the critical reaction was so. Was so good that they, that's what I think helped sway uh, CBS into moving it from Friday to Monday and giving it a tryout on Monday. And then once they're on Monday, where a lot of people could see them, they started to really uh, blossom into a big hit. So the critics really helped. And so I already knew, and I already was a big fan of the show myself, you know, critically or whatever. I just, I knew it was a very well written show. And I could, even apart from the fact that I'm super biased because it's my friend who's in it. I knew they realized like this is good. This is really good. I want to be a part of this, and and so that did. I did think you know part of this is like if these guys are going to be winning Emmys, I want to be part of that. <laughs> um, and uh, lo and behold, I moved out, and three months later they were nominated for an Emmy. I had nothing to do with that because it was for the previous season. But I did always tell them you're welcome.
0: Okay. <laughs> so, so you 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 go and then. You know, you were nominated for an Emmy for one of your episodes. And, yes. And you, you guys received two Emmys, I believe, right?
1: Uh, yeah, the show won um, in 2003 and 2004. Oh, 2005. So 2005.
0: Yeah. what's it like winning an Emmy? I mean, because, you know, so many times people, you know, they don't get the Susan Lucci, you know, syndrome. <laughs> but, there's, you know, it's something that, you know, so many people have been up for Emmys. And, and you know, for certain times it's like, you know, when you were sitting there as an actor, when Bill Cosby was popular, you know he was going to win. When John Lyra Cat was up, you know he was going to win, you know. When right. when you're sitting there, I mean, was it your for the first one, the first one you won wasn't like, weren't you guys an underdog? Uh,
1: I, I think both, both. And even the second one, I think we were more of an underdog because I think by that time people were like, ah, that show's over, you know. Uh, it, it is a s- incredible experience. There's no other way because... It's, it's, you never think you're going to win. And one thing that people, well, it's, it it is incredible just to be nominated because that's already, holy crap, I'm at the, you know, Emmys. But what happens is we got nominated four years in a row or whatever it was, three years in a row, and we lost every time in every category. Well, not, to take it back, not in every category, but we lost every time. (laughs) and. You're there and you're hoping, oh my God, I hope we win and then you lose and you suddenly feel like a loser and of course you're not a loser because you're already nominated it's already great. Um, you know so when when we've had we had the experience three or four times in a row of not winning and you you know you' just you can't help your adrenalines you know is it ah, no ah, no again and again and again. So when they finally you just don't believe you get conditioned like I don't think it's gonna happen for us and there were hipper shows. You know, Sex and the City beat us, uh, Ally McBeal beat us, um, Will and Grace beat us, I think, if I remember right, um, and you just kind of, st- at the point that we won, which was our seventh season, I think we were all starting to think, maybe it's not going to happen for us. You know, Roseanne, if I'm not mistaken, never won, or won once, or maybe never, That you know, Roseanne was not as recognized as, as that show should have been by the Academy, um, and we started to think maybe our family show is just not hip enough for uh, to get enough votes, even though we all, all, of course, were proud of what we were doing. So when it finally happened, it was really like, really, really.
0: So, so, what, where are your Emmys now?
1: Oh, they're in my office. You know, I uh, for when I first got it, I was like, I put it in the when you walked in my front door, you saw that Emmy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted to drive around with it on the hood of my car, yeah. but, you know. Uh, I have now retreated them into my office. You
0: know. now, I, I want to talk about some of your other shows, but I want to talk about the show that, that Netflix just came out, One Day at a Time, just because you know that. Yeah, just, that's right. I want to talk about that because uh, because I want to know how did that come about? Because you know, as you said, you know, we grew up watching TV, and we all had a crush. We're about the, we're the same age, I believe. We all had a crush on Valerie Bertinelli, and mm-hmm. you know, how did that show come about? And because you had done. The original, you know, uh, Men of a Certain Age, and then you would show around for Lucky Louie, but which I want to talk about. But I want to talk about the One Day at a Time right now. How did that show come about, and what was it like going to a venue like Netflix?
1: Yeah, so Norman's uh, producing partner, Brent Miller, um, I think, you know, they were looking at Norman's old shows and wondering, how can we do something that's interesting? And I think Brent had the idea, what if we rebooted one day at a time, but with a, like a Latino family, the Latino just thinking, let's do something. The Latino audience is incredibly underserved. And, you know, let's, let's I think Norman, Norman had uh, uh, AKA Pablo, which was a show that, you know, didn't last very long. And I think he always felt like, I wanna do something that's, uh, you know, with a Latino audience. And um, so they went to, you know, and it's a Sony property So, I mean, Sony owns the One Day at a Time, so I guess Sony and Brent went to Netflix and kind of proposed this idea, and they liked it, and we, you know, they ended up meeting with uh, uh, Gloria Calderon-Kellett, who is my co-developer and co-showrunner, and, as I say now, my um, (laughs) co-dependent on the show. Um, And the show kind of, you know, and and they met with me, and I was was very interested. Um, I am not... Latino, obviously, (laughs) right. and so my first question was like, I'm not, I can't be, you know, we need someone who, this, you know, the voice of whom is gonna be coming through the show, and that was Gloria, and she was a playwright um, who wrote all these great uh, things that I, you know, I read and really, really enjoyed, so we got to, you know, they once, they, once Norman approved and approved me, we got together, and Gloria and I really, Hit it off creatively, and the show is kind of a mishmash a little bit. It's really, you know, a lot of her family. Um, I also have teenagers, so I was able to sort of bring some of that to the table, and uh, it just became this basically completely different show from the original. Uh, but the premise is the same; it's a single mom. But you know, now we've made her a veteran uh, based on Norman's input. Norman's a veteran and very concerned about veterans' uh, issues. Uh, as am I, and as is Gloria, uh, I was able to do a show called Enlisted a couple of years ago that you know brought me in touch with a lot of military people, and it was really eye-opening for me. Um, so the, the main character, she's a, a veteran, and uh, her ex-husband is a, a veteran as well. Uh, so we're able to deal with some of that stuff. It's a very interesting biography to have in America right now. So yeah, it's, uh, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but that's sort of how it all came about.
0: Now, now, what's it like, though, as a writer... A TV, a TV guy, to sit there and you have to take over. You ha- you have to work with a Norman Lear project. It reminds me, like I was a big Phil. I'm the big Philadelphia Phillies fan. And when Mike Schmidt retired, poor Charlie Hayes comes about, and people are like, you know, you got big shoes to fill. What's uh, yeah. What's it like to sit? there I mean, because I mean, you know, Norman Lear is is a legend. I mean, you know, the guy sh- shaped sitcoms. What is it like when you meet someone like that? and you you must be very flattered but was it a little bit intimidating too because he is like he's norman lear
1: yeah no it's super super intimidating i mean just from the point of view of uh you know he's not intimidating because he's an extremely nice you know his spirit is uh, quite amazing he's got quite a not to sound too highfalutin, but a life force. He's just, he's lived a long life, and he's got a lot to say, and he's got a lot of, he's just a warm, wonderful man, and uh, and also a very smart and experienced man. Um, the idea that we were going to do this was intimidating. It became a little more, like I was more reassured once I was, you know, they didn't want to like redo the same show. They wanted us to take the situation and make a new show out of it. So when Gloria and I were sort of allowed to just create it kind of from whole cloth using just the premise, we, we did keep the, you know, Schneider as a character, but he's a completely different kind of a Schneider. Um, then it became like, oh, well, this is fun because we're able to create the show ourselves. Then, of course, you're just still intimidated like, well, people are still going to be looking at this like it's a Norman Lear show, so it better freaking be good (laughs) (laughs) um and uh yeah thankfully we've had a really good response to the show but yes uh, it's of course anxiety producing and, and intimidating
0: now what is it like writing as you said you know you're not latino and you know you had your partner to help you out with that but what is it like when you sit there and you sit down and you write and you want the show to be a mass hit So do you sit there and have to think, okay, you know, we have to have less, because the family's Cuban, right? Less Cubano and a little more, you know, put a little more white in it. I mean, how do you go across, because you want it across the masses, and unfortunately, and this is sad to say, but there are certain people in America who aren't going to watch a show about Latinos because they have no idea what a Latino is and they don't, you know, I mean, it's, it's sad to say, but it's true. There's some people, they don't, they can't, you know, living in LA and living, you know, back East, we, we, we know we've encountered it, you know, we have neighbors, but how do you, as a writer, how do you sit there to want to convey it to the masses to also get the point across that, you know, embrace the Latino culture, because it's a culture just like your culture, but just different traditions.
1: Well, I mean, Just as far as the mass audience, the good thing was being on Netflix is much more about do the show that you believe in, and as long as there's enough of an audience, that's okay. You don't have to be the number one show on on television. Also, we'll never tell you if you're a hit or not because we don't reveal our numbers. So you got all that going for you. Um, But beyond that, you know, Gloria and I very quickly, you know, this just it all lives in when you're just doing specifics about a family. And so we're not worried about people relating to it. I mean, I should say the opposite. We're very worried about people relating to it, but we try to, that's why we focus on making everything relatable, uh, period. And the way it's relatable is not to take anything Latino out of it. In fact, it's the opposite. It's, It's to make sure you get those Cuban details right so that people look at the family and they just, the feelings and the emotions and the, the, the conflicts; these are all universal things, but the attention to detail is super important to make the characters believable. You know, what, where you get in trouble is when they're not believable. When they're like stereotypes, or if you're, you know, as you say, trying to like, you know, make it less of less Cuban or something like that. If it, if it's happening, you know, on Raymond, we Phil would always say, if it's happening in your house, it's probably happening in a lot of people's houses, and it's the same thing with our family. Um, even though they're Cuban and there's fewer Cubans than there are uh, a lot of other uh, um, nationalities in, uh, you know, Cuban-American, I should say. Uh, in America, you know, people, uh, we, as we've seen from the response, people can watch this show, and, you know, my Italian family's like that, my Irish family's like that, um, and, and that's just, that's just the, you know, hopefully, if you're doing things right, that's what ends up happening. It's interesting because even back on Raymond, when they started it, I think people were a little wary at the network about it being too Italian. So if you can imagine, you know, that wasn't too long ago.
0: Right, exactly.
1: <laughs> and so, you know, the notion that, I mean, that they, they um, they're they just, you know, networks are nervous. Uh, uh, in this case, we have, uh, we're, it's, it's that many years later and we're on a network that it is the opposite of nervous. They're like, just go do this show. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, we're very gratified to, feel, you know, so many people who are not in it's, – it's, there are mostly not Latinos in the United States, and many of those people are really enjoying the show as well as Latinos, and that's what we were hoping for.
0: Now, as a writer, what's it like when – you work for Raymond and um, Men of a Certain Age and all these shows that the episodes, you know, you churned out one a week. You know, Raymond, you had to get it done. You know, you had to write your stories. With Netflix, because it all comes out at once – is there a different writing process? Because, you know, I would, I would assume, like, over a season of Raymond, some things may develop. You know, you, you, you may have a recurring character that all of a sudden you go, wow, we got to bring this person back. But when you're writing, I mean, how does that work when you know they're all coming out at once? Uh,
1: it, you know, interestingly, uh, I have mostly had that experience. Uh, Raymond was not like that, but almost every other show I did, and it's that's not the usual experience. But like Lucky Louie, Men of Certain Age, enlisted even 6,800 pen, Pen, uh, which I uh, was a showrunner for. Um, mm-hmm. These were all shows that were like either mid season or cable, and so they had different different ways of operating, and we got done with everything before it hit the air. You know, so it was familiar to me. Um, what's interesting about the Netflix process is they pick up a whole season, so you're not doing a pilot. So for a multi-camera sitcom, you know, where there's a studio audience and it's dependent on people getting laughs, uh, it's, it's a little bit of a high-wire act to shoot 13 in a row. Uh, usually what happens is, you know, you shoot the pilot, then you have a, you know, the network thinks about it, then they decide to pick up the pilot, then you have a whole bunch of months. Before you're going to shoot another one, where you're writing and you're breaking stories, but you can you can base everything that you're doing on wh- wh- how the pilot turned out. You know, maybe there was an actor who didn't quite work out, so you replaced them. Maybe there was a storyline that feels like you started it, but it, it's not a good storyline, so you you know uh, uh, go away from it. We didn't have that. We had the script, the pilot script, but we hadn't shot the pilot. We shot the pilot, and then two weeks later, we shot episode number two. So our whole thing was like, if we've screwed up somehow, it's gonna be a lot of work to fix it. (laughs) If we shoot the first one and find out, oh my God, XYZ doesn't work, well, we've already broken eight, nine stories and written all these scripts based on that thing. We don't have the time that you normally have between uh, on a broadcast show. So it's, it's it's a, like I say, a high wire act, it's a risk. Thankfully for us, the pilot we were very happy with and every performer, was uh, stupendous, <laughs> and our our, our writing—we didn't have anything in the writing that we want to change drastically. So, so it worked out. But it's a uh, yeah, it's it's a challenge.
0: Now, I want to get back to earlier parts of your career. With uh, was Lucky Louie the first show that you became a showrunner on, and, and what was that responsibility when you had to get? That's you know, it's you're the bigwig now. Besides Louie, yeah. how did that come about? Did you know him from New York comedy, or were you guys buddies?
1: Yeah, I, we you know similar to Ray, we Louis and I had coexisted in the clubs for a long time. Louis was always like Ray, way ahead of me, <laughs> much more successful, much funnier. Um, I was always kind of you know I, I I did well. I was building a career, but Louis was like you know at the top of the heap uh, 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 pretty early on. Um, and he had uh, he had done a pilot for CBS the year before Lucky Louis and he got close to being on the air, and that was right, and you know, he was interested in, in, you know, he tried to basically do a network version of himself, and it wasn't that successful. He was dissatisfied with some of the way it turned out. He liked some of, you know, he liked the experience. He wanted, I think, more control over it, and just the fact that he had to be on a network kind of censored him, obviously, if you've seen his act. Right. (laughs) Uh, So, when this HBO, I guess, you know, he went and pitched the show to HBO and he wrote the whole pilot himself. And when he needed a show, well, he wanted to be in it, they were like, well, you got to go get a showrunner because you can't just do everything yourself if you're going to be in it. And um, he found that, you know, Raymond was ending and he knew I was available. So I think he thought that's a good match. He didn't want some, you know... It was good that I was inexperienced. In other words, it was good I had experience on a good show but, and that he knew me and we could form a relationship. I wasn't going to be the guy who came in and dictated to him how his show was supposed to go. He could really remain in control uh, at the same time that we were working together. So it, it, I think that was what was attractive to him.
0: So you did that and then now men of a certain age, that comes along and you create you, – now did you co-create that with Ray or did you create that on your own?
1: Uh, no, we created it together.
0: Now what was that like when all of a sudden it's your creator, you know, you're, you're going to be the creator and it's also, it's a break away from straight up sitcom. I watched the show, it was very enjoyable, but it wasn't, you know. Yeah, and it people, was a
1: drama with some comedy. Yeah,
0: people who yeah. may be expecting, you know, Raymond, you know, from Everyone Loves Raymond. Yeah, some of the, the beats were the same, but, you know, he, you know, the son and the family and, you know, just the different things what was that like? Was that were you were you excited to try to branch out the drama? Was it something that you and Raymond had talked to in the in the past about saying, "Hey, one day we might do a drama"? Or I mean, how did that whole the drama aspect come along? Because you were coming off sitcoms, you were coming off Emmy, Emmy Emmy sitcom. You ran Lucky Louie. You know, you had you had that comedy in your background. How did the drama come to? I mean, yeah. do, and how did the network? take you serious when it's two guys who are basically sitcom guys
1: yeah you make it sound much harder than it was it's funny now that I think about it (laughs) Um, it really came out of this organic thing where Ray and I just started meeting because we didn't know so the answer is we didn't go oh my god one day we have to do a drama you know we just met and started talking about stuff that was interesting to us it was originally like let's try to write a movie or something while we have all this time Ray has now, in this timeline, there has been a year and a half or so since Raymond went off the air, and he's been looking for the right thing to do, and, you know, he's dabbling in movies a little bit, but hadn't found a lot that had really excited him. Um, Friday Night Lights was on, and he was a big fan of that show, and I was too, and we just started talking about doing something in that tone, this very naturalistic tone. Part of the reason it was, you know, that we felt like it had to be that way was so that Ray needed to do something completely different than Raymond. He didn't want to do something that where it would be compared to Raymond, uh, like another sitcom. He doesn't want to do that again because he feels like he did it right the first time. So I don't want to, you know, do that. Um, and the issues, the stuff we were talking about, you know, it felt it was very basically because it started as kind of an indie movie almost. That's sort of the tone of where we ended up. So we we started talking, we we were both in our mid-40s. I'm younger than him, but he was, yeah, he was late 40s, I was early 40s. And um, everything we were talking about was, you know, two guys going through a midlife crisis. (laughs) Maybe not crisis, going through midlife issues. And then talking about our friends who were going through similar, but in different situations, having similar thoughts. And we decided, you know, we like on Raymond, it was relatable to us. We we're like, this is a definite relatable situation. In fact, people have tried midlife shows before with different successes. And you know, just to one thing we didn't want to do was the goofy midlife. I'm going out of my mind, and I'm gonna you know buy a Corvette and go get laid. stereotype version. Uh, we wanted to keep it very real and 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 write what we knew and were experiencing. So. It, it came out of that, you know, knowing a lot, the three characters were, you know, there's a, a married guy, which sort of, that's where Ray and I are married with kids. Um, then there's a guy who's never been married, who we know a lot of people like that. And then there's a guy who's divorced. And, of course, that's uh, when you're uh, in your 40s, You, a lot of your friends and relatives, that's the thing that's happening in their lives. So it felt like three different perspectives on that era in your life, it just sort of took flight from there,
0: you know? Now, but, yeah. What was the difference in the writing rooms? Because coming from a sitcom, you know, now when you went to get writers, did, did you get, were you looking at more comics? Were you looking at more serious areas? How do you staff a show like that when you're coming from a sitcom where the writing, I'm sure the room is much looser? And, you know, Phil's been on my show, and you know, I'm sure Phil Ron, and when Phil is around, Phil's a very positive, uplifting guy. And I'm sure there was a, everyone was, you know, a good sense of humor, but you had to write you had to write some heavier stuff in you know, the anxiety and stuff like that in, in men of a certain age. How do right. you how do you go about staffing a show like that? And what's the overall feel of the writing room?
1: Uh, it was an interesting mix. It was a smaller room than a comedy room. There were only six there were eight of us, including me and Rice, there were six writers. It was mostly former comedy writers and then a couple of drama-ish writers. It felt more like a comedy room, uh, although we didn't. So just in terms of breaking the stories, there was a lot of joking around. (laughs) There was uh, it felt like, you know, it wasn't that different from the Raymond room in terms of we were bringing in stuff from our own lives and relatable stuff and talking, telling stories and trying to see what made a interesting story for this show. That's all the same as the Raymond thing. We just then didn't translate it into uh, the same genre, you know, the same like punchlines and stuff. And where the room diverted was, we would never, or hardly ever, rewrite in the room. You know, we would break the stories and talk about it. Then the, the the writers would write drafts, and we would give notes, and we'd go back and forth like that. But in a comedy room, you're always looking at a screen and like rewriting, you know, and pitching jokes and kind of doing group rewrites. And we didn't do that uh, on this. And I don't, I've never been in a straight up dramedy room before, or drama room before. I don't know exact, I don't, I think it's somewhat similar, but I just, that's just the way that it worked for us.
0: Now, the show got uh, critical acclaim. Now, I believe you guys want a Peabody. Yes, sir. Now, does it frustrate you when it gets a critical acclaim? and you went to Peabody, so you're doing something right, and then it get can- then got canceled. I mean, how's, as a creator, how do you deal with that? It must piss you off because it's like, hey, you know what? You know the product's good, and I'm not going to mention a certain show that my girlfriend watches. It's been on for like five years that I or six <laughs> years or seven, and it's the worst crap I've ever seen in my life. In fact, when she watches it, I go upstairs. But I mean, how do you as a, as a writer and a creator, especially because you know, you guys created this together. It's like your baby. How do you react to that? I know, you know, it, you know, it's part of the business, but it's it'd be different if, if they said, "Oh, this sh- sl- show is schlock." But no, you got the Peabody Award. You're getting good acclaim. How do you react to that as as a writer and a creator?
1: Not well. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 but I, I'm, you know, I mean, it was crushing, honestly, be, not because it was so unfair which you could argue back and forth you know the show the ratings were not great i think they were i think they were good enough to renew and tnt you know was agonizing about it i i don't want to in any way trash them because they took a chance on this show that didn't fit in you know it was very unlike all the other shows they were doing and they were trying to make it work and the fact that we got two seasons out of it and all this work that we're proud of—that's all, you know, good. And I think they and we, you know, think that they probably made a mistake. That they probably could have renewed it, and we would have, yeah, had a bit of an upswing. And obviously, there was critical stuff to, you know, that we could have taken advantage of. But at the same time, it's it's you know, it's it's just it's hard when you're doing something good and and it it's you're not able to do it anymore, and uh, it's not. The numbers were not great, so it's it was not out of some kind of weird, complete injustice. Um, you know, it's always, a, it's always a judgment call on, on their part and uh, on the people's part. It also, if we had only been maybe a couple years later, the whole streaming thing was happening. You know, if this was a Netflix show or a Hulu show, I think we'd be on forever, you know. But it was right before all that stuff happened. I think Netflix had just announced this new show, House of Cards. Uh, you know, they had just gotten into streaming, and it's recent history, but it's ancient enough now to like. We were at the very tail end before streaming took off, um, and there might have been. We tried to sell it to a bunch of places, but like Amazon wasn't really a thing yet. It just, you know, it 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 it. it yeah, we could have it could have kept going in a different era. I think.
0: Now you you said now you show ran sixteen hundred uh, pen.
1: Yes, yes. I didn't create that, but I was the showrunner.
0: Now, do you ever sit there now with, with the political climate we're in right now that you sit there and there was a sitcom about the White House <laughs> and now, you know, and, you know, the, the trophy wife and all that? Did you ever sit there and think, like, you know, did you ever think being involved in a political show that, you know, a few years after the. There, our country would be divided politically. Did you ever think that? Because, I mean, comedy brings things together. But what were your thoughts? Like, would you just like, oh, this stuff like this will never happen? I mean, what, what went through your mind? Because now it's changed. I mean, you know, looking back now, you know, you read the log line of the show, and it's, it's, it's a mess. I mean, what, I mean, what do you think as someone who uh-huh. ran that show?
1: Well, I mean, 1600 Hundred Pound was very apolitical. It was. Uh, I, I'm not sure that the president's party was ever stated. If I'm, I can't remember, but I don't think it was. It was. It was. What was funny is even back then, it, it wasn't that long ago. 2012 wasn't exactly. You know, things were pretty polarized back then, and that was when Romney was running versus Obama. And I remember seeing tweets. I remember seeing tweets like, "Oh, NBC made a show with a white president because they can't handle that we have a black president." Then I saw tweets that were saying, "Oh, NBC." Uh, wrote this show with a white president to be politically correct, you know? So there were people on both sides. People on both sides seeing, viewing the fact that the president was white completely differently, you know? Conservatives thought it was some kind of, like, you know, PC thing, because, like, we wouldn't have a black president so that we weren't making fun of him. Right. You know what I'm saying? And then liberals thought, oh, they have a white president, which means the conservatives are, you know, must have gotten to NBC and, you know, force them to have a white president on TV. Um, so people view things in a, in a way that some it obviously fits their agendas. The show was just about this family in the White House and was really just a family show, except it was the first family, you know.
0: Now, what's uh, and now, will there be a second season of One Day at a Time? Do you know, or have you heard anything? Or
1: I, I don't know yet. We're extremely hopeful, and I'm pretty confident, but uh, I don't think we'll find out for at least a couple more weeks.
0: Now... In your off time, have you thought about doing stand-up again, or is that something that's just a page out of your life? Because I know Scrovan, and I have gone. I didn't go this year, but I went to the two before the benefit that Scrovan holds. Right,
1: for Public Citizen. Yeah, right.
0: and I know him and Schneider were up there, and you know Steve hadn't been on stage forever. Did, did that start putting little urns, in your, urns to the fire of your stand-up, just seeing those guys going back up on stage?
1: Uh. No, because those guys suck. Uh, they're terrible cops. No, um, uh, <laughs> no, they're both hilarious guys, obviously. Uh, it doesn't because I just, first of all, in a realistic set sense, I am under a deal at Sony, so in my, quote, off time, I am creating other shows. Okay. and Helping, uh, I don't you know, I'm supervising a show, and I'm, I just sold an animated made pilot to uh, TBS with another uh, guy that hopefully we can get going, and um, there's a bunch of other stuff going on that I'm doing, writing-wise, I also just don't have the desire. I, I, you know, I'm i able, I have my outlet, I'm able to, you know, when we have our wrap party, I can go up and give a funny toast, you know. <laughs> I, can, I, I have my times when I can say stuff. Um, and I, I, to be perfectly frank, I, my ongoing anxiety dream is the same thing every time. I'm, I, I'm somehow booked to headline uh, something, And as the as and so I'm like a few minutes from going on stage. It starts to dawn on me that I'm about to do a show, 45 minutes. It's always about like a a headline set, and then I realize I don't know. I have no material that I haven't done stand up in a million years. And I'm trying. And then I the next step is I'm always explaining feverishly to some whoever booked it. Like oh, there must be some mistake. I'm not really I'm not supposed to be here. Uh, Can I maybe do five minutes and say oh no, what are you talking about? You're a headliner. And then ladies and gentlemen, Mike Royce. And then I wake up.
0: That's funny because, I mean, I, I dabble every once in a while. I might go on stage twice a year. But I, I also have had those dreams where you sit there and my thing is like you just – the crowd like just starts getting rowdier and rowdier. And, and you're sitting there on stage and it's like – and for some reason it's always a crappy stage. Like like you walk out to a good stage but then it's like next thing you know it's like one of those old – I mean you probably remember John Shuler, uh back in – you know, used to – book yeah. and he would have those clubs like – You'd go into a barn in like a bar turned into a barn in New Canaan, Connecticut. And oh, sure. you sit there. But yeah, so I always, <laughs> yeah. I have that weird dream occasionally. And it's like, oh, my God.
1: That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't, it's not, I'm not not doing stand up because of my anxiety dream. But I think <laughs> I just don't have a desire. The anxiety dream just represents all the anxiety right. in my life wrapped <laughs> up in that particular situation. But uh, no, I'm perfectly happy not to uh, do stand up.
0: Cool, I, I want to thank you for coming on This is fun I, I like talking uh, about the old comedy And the, uh, the writing and everything Now, now, are, you said Twitter Do you tweet a lot? Are you a big Twitter guy?
1: I, I, I go in spurts But, I'm, you know, at Mike Royce is my thing And I, I obviously recently have been promoting the show some But I try to stay active And, and I try to stay not too active <laughs> I don't want to, uh, you know, blizzard people with stuff So, right. you know, a couple, couple, three, four a day but sometimes
0: not. Okay, so it's at Mike Royce. So people, go follow him at Mike Royce. Follow him at Mike Royce. That's R-O-Y-C-E, Mike, yes. R O Y C. And also people, follow me at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. I tweet a lot. I haven't tweeted much lately. I don't know why. I just haven't been... I'm, I'm trying to keep away from the politics because it's, right. uh, it's just a pain. So people, do that. Also, people, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 580 episodes. You can email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. And if you're interested in doing a podcast or getting into internet radio, I do. I will tutor you guys. It's very easy. You'd be surprised how easily I do my show and how inexpensive it is. And so you can email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. I can also give you insight on booking good guests, doing a good interview. So send it there. Also, don't forget uh, my other website, stopthesalt.com. When I had a health problem a few years ago, I uh, wrote a cookbook. It's 120 low-sodium recipes uh, for one, but now... Me and Joanne expanded, so we have two. Um, but, yeah, so you go, and there's no pictures to intimidate you, no big, long-list ingredients. If you don't have cumin, don't worry. You don't need cumin. You, 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 just basic stuff. So do that. So go to stopthesalt.com and buy it from there. You can get it at Amazon or BarnesNoble.com, but get it from stopthesalt.com So, people, go to CooperTalk.net. Email me, Cooper, at CooperTalk.net, at CooperTalk, at Mike Royce, IMD Mike, watches old shows, Check it out. So remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.